Watto and welcome to Woodhouse Keeping, a show about Woodhouse PG. We take one book and give it a long look, then move on chronologically. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Woodhouse Keeping, the podcast where I, Ian Coburn, read through and discuss the works of PG Woodhouse in chronological order. There will be plot spoilers. I'm having to do this episode solo, but hopefully I'll be able to rustle up some more guests soon. Now we've got to book number three, Tales of St. Austin's, published by A&C Black in November 1903, only a couple of months after a prefix uncle that we discussed last time. Dedication. The book is dedicated in Latin to Woodhouse's mother, Eleanor, who I'm sure was thrilled by the honour. Tales of St. Austin's is a book for boys, and it's a collection of 11 stories and four humorous articles that, with one exception, are all reprinted from the public school magazine, or The Captain. This material spans the years 1900 to 1903. Although the humorous articles which appear at the end of the book are about public school life in general, the actual stories are all set in St. Austin's, the public school Woodhouse had used for his first novel, The Pot Hunters. And once again, for newcomers, in this context, a public school is a fee-paying boarding school. And St. Austin's is generally accepted to be a fictionalised version of Woodhouse's own school, Dulwich College. By the way, when I did the episode on the Pot Hunters, I didn't think to look up who St. Austin actually was. But it turns out it's another name for St. Augustine of Hippo. Of Lord, make me chaste, but not yet, fame. I was wavering over discussing the stories in the order they appear in the book or in the order which they first appeared in magazines. In the end, I decided to discuss them in roughly book order, but with one exception. I want to talk about the manoeuvres of Charteris first. As by far the longest story in the collection, and also the best and most interesting, to my mind, I have far more to say about it than the others. It originally appeared in two parts in The Captain in August and September 1903, only two months before the book came out. The story focuses on Charteris, a prominent character in The Pot Hunters, my favourite character in fact. Charteris is sometimes called the Alderman because he's inclined to stoutness apparently, although it doesn't seem to hinder him in his athletic performances. He's good at both cricket and rugby, like most of the heroes of these stories, is a banjo player and is the editor and main author of the anonymous and unofficial school magazine The Glowworm. By the way, when we recorded our episode on the Pot Hunters, I knew that Woodhouse had been the editor of the official school magazine at Dulwich College, joint editor I should have said, but I didn't realise until I read Norman Murphy's Woodhouse Handbook that he was also the editor of his own anonymous unofficial magazine, like Charteris. Charteris is the most wise-cracking and talkative character in The Pot Hunters, and in Woodhouse's school novels such characters are always comedic foils rather than the main character. Although admittedly The Pot Hunters doesn't really have a main character. But here in a long short story, Charteris is allowed centre stage. But in order to sustain the human interest, he's given a bit more depth of character as a sort of rebel without a cause. The headmaster of St. Austin's, who he previously got on well with, has hurt his feelings and his pride by misjudging him. The injustice of the thing rankled. No one so dislikes being punished unjustly as the person who might have been punished justly on scores of previous occasions, if he had only been found out. So, in retaliation, he goes into an extended phase of breaking every rule he can on principle, past the point where he actually wants to do it anymore. But his pride won't let him stop until the headmaster makes some overtures to a truce. 
his friends to spare and force the inevitable expulsion. The opening scene of the manoeuvres of Chartres is one of outright class war, akin to the song Eaton Rifles by the Jam. St Austin's Rugby First 15 are playing their annual match against a village team informally called the Bargies. Woodhouse uses the word bargies frequently in his school stories. It's his standard term for supposedly rough, lower-class men. These stories, of course, were written by someone who had not long since been to a public school himself and was writing these stories for an audience of public schoolboys. Later, when writing for a more general audience, his upper-class characters use other words, such as Bertie Wooster's preferred phrase, tough eggs. This opening scene implies a level of snobbery, even class hatred, that to an extent is mitigated by some later parts of the story, which we'll come to. The Bargies match was a curious institution. Their real name was the Old Cropfordians. When, a few years before, the St Austin's secretary had received a challenge from them, dated from Stapleton, where the secretary happened to reside, he had argued within himself as follows. This sounds all right. Old Crockfordians? Never heard of Crockford. Probably some large private school somewhere. Anyhow, they're certain to be decent fellows. And he arranged the fixture. It then transpired that Old Crockford was a village, and from the appearance of the team on the day of battle, the Old Crockfordians seemed to be composed exclusively of the riffraff of same. Unluckily, the first year saw a weak team of Austinians rather badly beaten, with the result that it became a point of honour to wipe this off the slate before the fixture could be cut out of the card. The next year was also unlucky. The match resulted in a draw in the following season, and by this time the thing had become an annual event. Those of you who have read The Pot Hunters may remember that the character who has the honour of being the first to appear in a Woodhouse book is one Tony Graham, and here he is again playing in the rugby match. But he gets his collarbone broken by one of the so-called bargies, the club secretary who has a beard. This character is going to appear repeatedly in the story, and he is never named. So for convenience, I'm going to dub him Beardo. St Austin's retaliate by getting their toughest player to tackle, obstruct and jostle Beardo as much as possible and Charteris, who is also playing, throws the ball his way whenever he can so Beardo can receive even more of this rough treatment. Beardo becomes infuriated with Charteris in particular and vows vengeance. In the post-match conversation, Welch and MacArthur warn Charteris to stop his unauthorised visits to the local town of Stapleton, which is out of bounds to the boys. They know that Beardo lives in Stapleton and will likely see him there and report him to the headmaster. Chartres pooh-poohs this idea. Soon enough, Chartres has cause to go to Stapleton in order to borrow some books from the college doctor, who is a friend of his, further still recuperating Tony Graham. The distance by road was exactly a mile. If you went by the fields, it was longer because you probably lost your way. As fate, or plot convenience, would have it, he is spotted by Beardo, his nemesis, the Bargy Club secretary, and later he is summoned to the headmaster's office and finds Beardo there denouncing him. Charteris admits that his housemaster didn't give him leave to go to Stapleton, and he lets the head tell him off for ten minutes before, mark the sequel, revealing his trump card that he had kept concealed till now and that Woodhouse had kept concealed from us, the reader, that he had received permission to go to Stapleford after all. It was literally true what he had said that he had not received permission from Mr Merivale, but he had received it from Mr Dacre. He considers that this puts him one up on both Beardo and the head. Then there's some gentle pages detailing how Charteris is largely at a loose end now all the rugby matches are finished with the one exception of the final house match for the sake of which Charteris knows he should keep fit, but he isn't interested in exercising. But MacArthur pesters him until he agrees to go for a run. Do you know a place called Warbury? I thought you wouldn't. 
it's only a sort of hamlet. Two cottages, four public houses and a duck pond and that sort of thing. This reminds me of later Woodhouse books which maintain that a typical English village, Market Blandings for example, has about one pub for every inhabitant. Charteris knows the oldest inhabitant of Warbury and proposes that he and MacArthur take tea with him. Charteris's circle of acquaintances was a standing wonder to the babe and other Merivalians. He seemed to know everybody in the county. So this is where we see the other side of the story as regards class war. Clearly Woodhouse didn't consider there always had to be a divide between the students and the populace. He thinks it's quite admirable for a boy to make friends with the locals as long as they're not the overly disagreeable sort like Beardo. As they arrive Woodhouse says the oldest inhabitant was smoking a thoughtful pipe. Note Woodhouse's use of the transferred epithet long before Bertie Wooster eats a moody forkful. They have an enjoyable meal with the oldest inhabitant and his wife, described as Mrs. Oldest Inhabitant, and they find out there are to be some sports at nearby Rutton, which piques Charteris's interest as he fancies himself for the stranger's mile. Just pausing to reflect on how this scene only serves the plot in as much as it's how Charteris finds out about the Rutton sports, but it's a very agreeable diversion and a good example of how Woodhouse can pad out a very basic plot and can make the padding among the best bits. I have a hypothesis. I wonder if he added more padding to this particular story, the manoeuvres of Charteris, than some of the others, because he couldn't get it short enough to fit the maximum length for a short story in a single issue of The Captain, so he decided to make it a two-part serial, but in order to do that he had to make it a bit longer. Just my speculation. And speaking of which, here is where the break in the story comes in the magazine version. Charteris is determined to break bounds for real this time to take part in the rotten sports because he knows he wouldn't be able to get permission from a master. After his friends fail to persuade him not to go, he gets out his gramophone and plays two records, Whistling Rufus and Bluebells, the latter of which Woodhouse helpfully gives us some sample lyrics to, which makes it clear it's the song also known as I'll Be Your Sweetheart. Charteris remarks with regret that he would like to be the headmaster's sweetheart if the headmaster would be his, metaphorically. This would have helped some new readers who missed the first instalment to get up to speed with the crux of the story, which is that Charteris would like to be a law-abiding citizen, but he's too proud to back down. We come to the scene with the sports, Charteris being very concerned that the stranger's mile turns out to be right at the end of the day, and he'll be hard pushed to run it and still catch his train back. But he considers he's in too deep to back down now. Then at the last minute before the race he realises that one of his competitors is none other than Beardo, who again threatens to expose him. Charteris reminds him that didn't go so well for him last time, saying, Perhaps Mr Dacre has given me leave. Note he is unable to tell an outright lie. Charteris is just beaten in the race, then remembers he has to hurry to catch his train. Woodhouse remarks he has four minutes and twenty-five seconds to catch the train, and he had just run a mile. Unfortunately, on his way, he encounters two hooligan youths of about 20 who have stolen a bike from a girl about 12. She was letting I dare not wait upon I would, like the late Macbeth, the cat i the adage, and other celebrities. That's a very familiar quotation from Woodhouse, getting its first airing in one of his stories. Chartres immediately takes on this chivalric or heroic role in coming to the aid of a damsel in distress with a bit of boxing. Charteris dashed in and, to use an expression suitable to the deed, swung his right at the mark. The mark, it may be explained for the benefit of the non-pugilistic, is that portion of the anatomy which lies hid behind the third button of the human waistcoat. In the magazine version it simply reads, the third button of the waistcoat. An example of Woodhouse giving a sentence some extra shine in the polishing. And if you don't know what a waistcoat is, it's how I pronounce waistcoat.
Anyway, apparently if you hit someone hard in this spot, they regret they were ever born. Chartres vanquishes the hoodlums and returns the bike to the girl. They shouldn't have sent you out alone, said Chartres. Why did they? They... they didn't. I came. There was a world of meaning in the phrase. Chartres felt he was in the same case. They had not let him. He had come. He was a kindred spirit, another revolutionary soul, scorning the fetters of convention and the so-called authority of self-constituted rules. Aha! Bureaucrats! This is all very well, but of course it means he narrowly misses his train. Missed it, sir! said the solitary porter who managed things at Rutton cheerfully. He spoke as if he were congratulating Chartres on having done something remarkably clever. But fortunately, Chartres is able to catch a lift from his friend Dr. Adamson in a dog cart, which is a light horse-drawn carriage. There's a couple more examples of additions Woodhouse made to the text. When he gets back, his friends ask him, Tell us what happened. I'll tell thee everything I can, said Chartres. There's little to relate. I saw an aged-aged man sitting on a gate. Where do you want me to begin? At the beginning. Don't rot! I was born, began Chartres, of poor but honest parents who sent me to school at an early age in order that I might acquire a grasp of the Greek and Latin languages, now obsolete. I... All that is new to the book version. The magazine version goes straight to... How did you lose? inquired the babe. The other man beat me. If he hadn't, I should have won, hands down. Then when discussing the likelihood of Beardo reporting him to the head again, the magazine version has... He'd got so badly left last time he tried to drop on me. And the book? He got so badly left last time he tried to compass my downfall. I pass over a lengthy description of the final rugby match of the season and get right to the conclusion of the story, where the headmaster summons him to his study. He has received an anonymous letter that he says he is sorry he ever read. Chartres is sorry he read it too. Chartres is confessing to his crime when the head's young niece wanders in. The astute reader will have already guessed that she and the girl with the bike are one and the same. She immediately tells her uncle that Chartres is her rescuer. Why, he's him, said Dorothy lucidly. The head looked puzzled. Him, the man, you know. It is greatly to the credit of the head's intelligence that he grasped the meaning of these words. Long study of the classics had quickened his faculty of seeing sense in passages where there was none. He gave the men beans, she said. In yet another added flourish in the book version, he did, really, she went on, regardless of the head's look of horror. He used right and left with considerable effect. This mends the relationship between the head and Chartres for good. He gives him a nominal punishment, some friendly advice, to cease to break school rules as a matter of principle, to which Chartres heartily agrees. Now we've got that magnum opus out of the way. We'll start again at the start of the book. The first story is... How Pillingshot Scored, from the Captain, May 1903. Pillingshot is a new character. He's trying to get out of an exam on Virgil that his teacher has only just announced. The story is basically a series of comic scenes about his mounting misfortunes. For example, an older boy gets him to field for him in his cricketing practice, then makes him toast muffins for him back in the study. But all this demeaning donkey work pays off when it leads to a chance for him to be the scorekeeper for a match, which means he will be excused from the test. So it turns out the point of the story is a pun, because Pillingshot is scoring in two senses. There's a line in this story that has always stuck with me. When he arrived at Pillingshot's seat and found it empty, an expression passed over his face like unto that of the baffled villain in transpontine melodrama. 
Transpontine means across the ocean, and I think in this context it refers to America, but it sounds so much grander than that. Woodhouse would revive the character pilling shot for two more stories in The Captain in 1910 and 1911. The second story is called The Odd Trick, which I'll cover together with the fourth story, Harrison's Slight Error. They were published in August 1902 and January 1903 respectively, both in The Captain. And I'm looking at them together because they both concern a character called Harrison. Several of these stories have an anti-hero or even a villain at the centre of them, which works well in a short story, but I don't think Woodhouse would want to do it for a whole novel. Harrison is one of these anti-heroes. He's generally up to no good. And both stories follow a similar pattern, with Harrison exacting what he sees as revenge on another boy, even though he, Harrison, was the one at fault in the first place. And the stories end with the other boy turning the tables and getting their own back on Harrison. In the odd trick, Harrison's antagonist is our old acquaintance Tony Graham, who as a prefect simply enforces the rules and punishes Harrison for his breach of the peace. Harrison later gets to be the umpire at a cricket match Graham is playing at and gives him a series of outrageous rulings out of spite. Then the third act is Harrison borrowing a random Macintosh because he's late for chapel and wearing it over his nightshirt, which is otherwise all he has on. Unfortunately, the Macintosh belongs to Graham, who claims it back after the service, and Harrison has to return to his boarding house in just a nightshirt, which doesn't go unnoticed by the authorities. These incidents are all amusing in themselves, but when you break the story down, it is three otherwise unrelated incidents, only linked by the personnel involved. In the other story, Harrison's slight error, at the start of a new term, his enemy this time is a new boy on whom he tries to play a prank. He tells new boy that although he is only a junior, he has been assigned to his own study. He shows him a room that is filled with another boy's possessions and tells the new boy that they all belong to a former pupil who left in a hurry and that he, the new boy, is to empty the room of all the stuff and put the stuff in the hall. In reality, the study belongs to the head of the house, Venables. Like several pranks in the collection, this feels like it could easily have happened in real life. When Harrison returns, instead of finding the new boy roundly beaten by Venables, Venables and the new boy are sitting happily together in the now empty room, and all Venables' belongings are scattered higgledy-piggledy along the passage. Venables explains to Harrison that the new boy is his younger brother. Anyhow, we thought you must know best, so we lugged all the furniture out into the passage, and now it appears there's been a mistake of sorts, and the stuff ought to be inside all the time. So would you mind putting it back again? We'd help you, only we're going out to the shop to get some tea. You might have it done by the time we get back. Thanks awfully. Venables is also the star of the third story in the book, La Fair Uncle John, a story in letters from the public school magazine August 1901 so one of the earlier ones it's an epistolary story a tale told entirely in letters a popular genre on and off since the 18th century Woodhouse takes to it very well and avoids repetitiousness by only printing parts of the letters and adding etc etc when we get to a bit that's going to retell something we've already said now one thing I've noticed about Woodhouse later in his life is he became an expert in relating the same incidents over and over again in a way that's never boring. A new character arrives on the scene and has to have the plot explained to him, and we actually look forward to having the plot recapitulated because we know it's going to be done in an entertaining way. And this probably is also good for readers just joining the story who are reading it in magazine form. Anyway, as in a prefect's uncle, the initial setup is a boy failing to recognise a stranger as being his uncle. He sees someone mutilating the cricket pitch. 
To my horror, amazement and disgust, I saw a middle-aged bounder in loud checks who, from his looks, might have been anything from a retired pawnbroker to a second-hand butler, sacked from his last place for stealing the sherry, standing in the middle of the field on the very wicket the Rugborough match is to be played on next Saturday, tomorrow, and digging, digging, I'll trouble you, excavating great chunks of our best turf with a walking stick. How on earth do you think we're going to play Rugborough on a ploughed field? I don't follow, mister, he replied. A man who calls you mister is beyond the pale. You are justified in being a little rude to him. So I said, then you must be either drunk or mad, and I trust it's the latter. It turns out to be his much despised but rich uncle, who was supposed to be recommending Venables for a job in some colonial concern, but now, offended by his nephew's rudeness, refuses, putting Venables' future in doubt. Cue lots of concerned family letters flying back and forth. The initial situation is all about class snobbery, and so much of Woodhouse would be hard to understand if you come from a culture that doesn't have a comparable class system. But he judges his uncle to be an outsider, quote-unquote, and outsider is a term for non-upper-class people that snobs like Aunt Agatha and Lady Constance would continue to use in Woodhouse's works. Beyond the pale is another phrase that is code for below one's own class. And yet again, bargy. I hope you won't think I'm harping on too much about this class issue, but I think it's laid on so thick in the book it's hard to tiptoe round. In the end, Venables' cricketing skills prove his salvation in a conclusion to the story that Julia mentioned in our Pot Hunters episode. There's a chap here I know pretty well, who is the son of Lord Marmaduke Sangajour, and it appears that the Duke himself was down watching the Rugborough match and liked my batting. He came and talked to me after the match and asked what I was going to do when I left. And I said I wasn't certain, and he said that if I hadn't anything better on, he could get me a place on his estate up in Scotland as a sort of land agent, as he wanted a chap who could play cricket, because he was keen on the game himself, and always had a lot going on in the summer up there. So he says that if I go up to that varsity for three years, he can guarantee me the place when I come down, with a jolly good screw and a ripping open-air life with lots of riding and so on, which is just what I've always wanted. Mike Jackson enjoys the same happy ending in Smith in the City. Now we come to another pair of stories that belong together, starring another anti-hero called Bradshaw. Whereas Harrison was spiteful and petty, Bradshaw is a criminal mastermind in the making. In a flamboyant touch, Woodhouse reveals that these stories all happened a long time ago, and Bradshaw is now an adult, recently convicted for fraud, in connection with the European, African and Asiatic pork pie and ham sandwich supply company. These two stories are also linked by having a first-person narrator, uniquely among the proper stories in this collection. The narrator is referred to only as What's Your Name by Masters. He remarks, I am What's Your Name, very much at your service. The basic premise of the two stories is also the same, of scheming to avoid preparing for an exam, as with the story How Pillingshot Scored that we've already covered. This makes these stories rare in the Woodhouse School story corpus in that they concern actual schoolwork or the avoidance of same, rather than sport and extracurricular activity. The first of the two stories is called Bradshaw's Little Story. July 1902, The Captain. The anti-hero, Bradshaw, gets only four out of a hundred in an exam, but escapes punishment at first because he tells the master he had inadvertently seen the paper before the exam and thought it wouldn't be fair to benefit from this advantage over the other boys, so he did as badly as he could on purpose. The master is fooled by this and later goes to the headmaster to boast of his pupil's honourable action. As the headmaster himself had set the exam paper and knew Bradshaw had had no opportunity of seeing the paper, he sees right through Bradshaw's little story. 
That's the quickest way of summarising the story, but it is not the order Woodhouse tells the story. The story is told in the style of a mystery, as the narrator and the other boys don't know what scheme Bradshaw is planning and don't find out what it was all about till right at the end. The second story featuring Bradshaw is A Shocking Affair, which is the one story that appears here for the first time, perhaps because, and I'm speculating wildly here, deceit is allowed to triumph, and thus the story was perhaps too amoral even for the captain, whose editorial policy can't have been all that puritanical given some of Woodhouse's material they did print. There is another acute piece of psychology mixed in with an observation about ghost stories. All you're going to know is that I shan't be there tomorrow. I bet you are, and I bet you do a jolly rank paper too, I said, remembering that the sceptic is sometimes vouchsafe's revelations to which the most devout believer may not aspire. It is, for instance, always the young man who scoffs at ghosts that the family spectre chooses as his audience. They're talking about a test they have to take about the Greek historian Thucydides, a.k.a. Thick Sides. Here is what What's Your Name says about the exam. Now, I have remarked already that I dare not say what I think of Thucydides' book too. How, then, shall I frame my opinion of that examination paper? It was Thucydides' book too, with a few easy parts left out. It was Thucydides' book too, with special homemade difficulties added. It was, well, in its way, it was a masterpiece. Without going into details, I dislike sensational and realistic writing, I may say that I personally was not one of those who required an extra ten minutes to finish their papers. I finished mine at half past two and amused myself for the remaining hour and a half by writing neatly on several sheets of foolscap exactly what I thought of Mr. Mellish and precisely what I hoped would happen to him some day. He was grateful and comforting. Bradshaw has kept his vow to simply not show up for the exam. It turns out he is trapped in the science museum. In the middle block at the top of the building, far from the haunts of men, is a science museum. There was Bradshaw entombed within the museum, with every prospect of death by starvation, unless he could support life for the next few years on the two stuffed rats and the case of butterflies. Bradshaw tells the staff members he is unable to open the door. Now, the immediate effect of telling a person that you are unable to open a door is to make him try his hand at it. Someone observes that there are three things which everybody thinks he can do better than anyone else, namely poking a fire, writing a novel and opening a door. Now here's an example in an early Woodhouse story of technology we take for granted now being an important plot point, just as cars rear their ugly heads in the white feather. Electric light had not yet superseded gaslight, so the fact that the Science Museum has electric light is novel, especially as this story is supposed to be set a few years previously. There is a fault and the metal door handle is giving everyone who touches it electric shocks. And we realise that the title of the story, A Shocking Affair, is another pun. Bradshaw had discovered this earlier and using a piece of paper to protect himself deliberately trapped himself in and he gets away with it this time. The nameless narrator gets into a confused tangle trying to decide what the moral of the story is and concludes, In consideration, the moral of this story shall be withdrawn and submitted to a committee of experts. Perhaps they will be able to say what it is. But we have already seen with these stories that Woodhouse is highly averse to moralising. Invest today in the European, African and Asiatic Pork Pie and Ham Sandwich Supply Company, London. This investment has been pronounced sound and secure by the prominent gentleman of finance, Frederick Wackerbath Bradshaw. Do not wait to consult your family solicitor. There isn't time. The Babe and the Dragon, February 1902, from The Captain. This story is about MacArthur, known as The Babe, who was also a major character in The Pot Hunters. 
At the time of the Potentus, he was a day boy, which means he lived nearby and just popped in for lessons, but didn't stay at the school as a boarder. And this is the story of how, when he switched to being a boarder, he chose which house to join. His elder sister has an annoying intellectual friend, Florence Beasley, the dragon of the story's title, who keeps mocking his ignorance and belittling him. When it transpires that Miss Beasley is to marry Mr Dacre, a housemaster, MacArthur makes up his mind not to join Dacre's house and to join Merivale's instead, the house of Chartres, Welch, Graham et al. His decision has repercussions later in the manoeuvres of Chartres because in the rugby match between Merivale's and Dacre's house, Dacre's team have a grudge against MacArthur and Merivale's house in general because of this decision, because he was a highly sought-after player. Norman Murphy suggests that Florence Beasley is based like other brainy and intimidating girls who went to Girton in the Woodhouse canon, such as Florence Cray and Honoria Glossop. He suggests that all these characters are based on Woodhouse's cousin, Helen Woodhouse, who was so academically gifted she ultimately published several books and became mistress of Girton College and president of the Federation of University Women. How Payne bucked up, October 1902, the captain. This concerns a new character, Payne, and is a rugby-based story. Again, rugby is always referred to as football or footer by Woodhouse in these early stories. Some members of the school team are concerned that Payne is slacking due to complacency. Someone decides the remedy is to demote him to the second 15. This does indeed make him buck up, as the title suggests, and he plays with such fervour when the second 15 play the first 15 that several first team members end up in the infirmary where the resident old-fashioned doctor favours leeches and hot fermentations. It's not clear if this doctor is Chartres's pal Dr Adamson or not. Anyway, it is decided the experiment of demoting pain has gone on long enough. The last three stories in the book, and then the four humorous articles that follow, are all among the earliest work of Woodhouse's that was ever published in book form in his lifetime. Author! Public School Magazine, October 1901. This story begins with a very specific description of some classroom ragging by a boy called Babington that sounds very much like it is taken from Woodhouse's own experience. The prank goes wrong and Babington is given detention by the supply teacher. Later he is offered a ticket to a morning theatrical premiere that would clash with his detention. He writes out the exercises that are his punishment out in advance, gets somebody else to answer for him at roll call and goes and watches the play with his cousin. This bunking off school to watch a play, by the way, will be repeated in the novel Head of Case. After the play, he goes off with his cousin and his cousin's friend for a meal, and they are joined by the cousin's friend's friend, Mr Seymour, who is the author of the play, and it also turns out to be the supply teacher who had given Babington detention. Awkward. Seymour doesn't recognise Babington at first, but he thinks he looks familiar. Seymour eventually recognises him, but as his duties as relief schoolmaster at St Austin's are over, he feels no personal duty to bring Babington to book, simply asking him out of curiosity. How did you manage about roll call today? Uh, I thought that was an awfully good part just at the end of the first act, said Babington. Mr Seymour smiled, possibly from gratification. The Tabby Terror, February 1902, Public School Magazine. This is the first of many stories Woodhouse wrote about cats, in this case a schoolmaster's cat, who keeps stealing the boy's food, and the plot concerns the boy's attempt to get rid of the cat. The cat is named after Captain Kettle, the one-legged swashbuckling sailor from the books of one Cutcliffe Hine. Some of the story is told in a rather mock-heroic strain. Its paw was against every man, and the tale of the things it stole is too terrible to relate in detail. Another phrase I like is, 
mewing in a minor key. One of the boys, Trentum, is in the infirmary, which seems to figure in a lot of these stories. There is some comment on the differences between fathers and mothers as regards concern for their offspring's health. He had been laid up with a slight football accident and his family, reading between the lines of his written statement that he had got cropped at footer, nothing much, only rather a nuisance, might do him out of the house muches, a notification of mortal injuries, and seeming to hear a death rattle through the words, felt rather chippy yesterday, had come down en masse to investigate. En masse, that is to say, with the exception of his father, who said he was too busy, but felt sure that it was nothing serious. Why, when I was a boy, my dear, I used to think nothing of an occasional dumble. There's nothing the matter with Dick. Why, etc., etc. Eventually, Captain Kettle eats a canary and is hastily given away to Trentum's married sister, who had visited him in the infirmary and had fallen in love with the cat at first sight. Again, the plot is as flimsy as can be imagined, but Woodhouse makes it work by working so hard on the language. I'm tempted to say the weaker the plot, the more he excels with the telling to compensate, but perhaps that's unfair as he works very hard on the telling of all his stories. We were talking about the lack of female characters in The Pot Hunters, so it's pleasing to note that there are far more of them in Tales of St Austin's, most notably the headmaster's daughter in The Manoeuvres of Charteris, the formidable blue-stocking Florence Beasley in The Babe and the Dragon, and the two women in this story, Trentham's sister Mrs Williamson and the master's wife Mrs Prater, who are both devoted to the cat and blind to his crimes. The Prize Poem, July 1901 public school magazine. The earliest story in the book, this was originally set at St Martin's, not St Austin's, so the names have been changed so as to fit with the other stories in the collection. I mentioned this one in the last episode about a prefect's uncle, how the basic premise was recycled for that novel subplot. In both stories, the school has an annual prize that is compulsory for a specific year group to enter, funded by a benefactor. This is another thing that is based on Woodhouse's own memories of school. To quote Norman Murphy, My thanks to Dr. Jan Piggott for the information that in 1893 the Raja of Borna or Bavnagar, in a prefect's uncle, the benefactor is the Raja of Seltzapur. In the prize poem, he is unnamed. Visited Dulwich and donated money to award a £10 prize. The headmaster, Gilks, decided to make it the prize for an annual poetry competition. The subject of the 1894 poem was, as in the book, The College, and the stanza beginning, Imposing pile reared up midst pleasant grounds, began the entry submitted by Armin Woodhouse, P.G. Woodhouse's elder brother. In both stories, a boy tries to get out of writing the poem and gets a friend to write it for him. In this case, the friend starts writing out a poem and the wind keeps blowing it away, and the other boys find these sheets of paper and see them as manna from heaven, ready-made poems they can use. It's a poem, anyhow, within the meaning of the act. So the head is disgusted to find three separate poems, all beginning with the same stanza. Imposing pile reared up midst pleasant grounds, courtesy of Armin Woodhouse. And it's fitting that in a story about cribbing poems, Plum Woodhouse himself cribbed off his elder brother. The head summons the three boys who have submitted the identical poems. All come clean. The first two admit they found the poem lying around, and the third says he got his friend to do it. Then am I to understand, Smith, that to gain the prize you resorted to such underhand means as this? No, sir. We agreed that there was no danger of my getting the prize. If I had got it, I should have told you everything. Reynolds will tell you that, sir. Then what object had you in pursuing this deception? Well, sir, the rules say everyone must send in something, and I can't write poetry at all, and Reynolds likes it, so I asked him to do it. And Smith waited for the storm to burst. 
but it did not burst. Far down in Mr. Percival's system lurked a quiet sense of humour. The situation penetrated to it. Then he remembered the examiner's letter, and it dawned upon him that there are few crueler things than to make a prosaic person write poetry. You may go, he said, and the three went. And at the next board meeting it was decided, mainly owing to the influence of an exceedingly eloquent speech from the headmaster, to alter the rules for the sixth form poetry prize, so that from thence onward no one need compete unless he felt himself filled with the immortal fire. By the way, the name Smith is spelt in the usual way, without a silent P, so this is not an early appearance of Woodhouse's most famous schoolboy character. I said Woodhouse didn't like a moral, but here is a clear moral, but it is one for the authorities to pay heed to rather than the boys. I think, apart from some short Sherlock Holmes parodies, Tales of St. Austin's contains all the short stories Woodhouse had published up to that point, except for Welch's Mile Record, which I summarised in the Pot Hunters episode. By contrast, the four comic articles that conclude the book are but a small selection of the comic articles Woodhouse wrote for the public school magazine that can be read online at madameulily.org. The first of these four articles is called Work, from December 1900, public school magazine, the very earliest writing of P.G. Woodhouse he published in a book in his lifetime. This expresses the view of schoolwork that Woodhouse believes the average schoolboy has, that it is all very well in its place, but is not to get in the way of the important part of school life, which is sport. He fantasises explaining this to his headmaster frankly, then making a getaway. I should then have made for the door, locked it if possible, on the outside, and rushing to the railway station have taken a through ticket to Spitsbergen or some other place where extradition treaties do not hold good passing over notes and now talking about cricket we come to the final piece in the book the tom brown question december 1901 a novel critique of thomas hughes's famous pioneering work of public school literature tom brown's school days woodhouse's premise is that the first part of the book is so much more appealing than the second part that they could not have been written by the same author in the first part tom brown is a likable relatable sporting fellow but in the moralistic second half he is a contemptible milksop this is the gist of woodhouse's summary not my own opinion i have no opinion since although i have read it i can't remember a thing about the novel the Tom Brown question, though gathered at the end with the comic articles, is a story of sorts, as the narrator has to listen to the ravings of a conspiracy theorist who maintains that the second part was written by the Secret Society for putting wholesome literature within the reach of every boy and seeing that he gets it, or the S-S-F-P-W-L-W-T-R-O-E-B-A-S-T-H-G-I. It reminds me of a much, the much later story by James Thurber, The Macbeth Murder Mystery, where the narrator is gradually convinced by the arguments of a fanatic that Macbeth is innocent in the play of the same name. Second mention of Macbeth in this podcast there. Some writers who discuss Woodhouse's work for boys cite this article as key to his attitude to his boys' books. He's pro-realism, anti-moralising, pro-leniency and anti-strictness in the masters, and arguably in modern terms pro-jocks, anti-nerds. That concludes the volume, and apart from those two further pilling shot stories in 1910 and 1911, Woodhouse would write no more about St Austin's College. Rykin, introduced in his next book, The Gold Bat, would take over as the most frequent setting of his school stories. There's one postscript to the St. Austin saga in The Ordeal of Young Tuppy in the collection Very Good Jeeves. Tuppy Glossop reveals he is an old Austinian. 
It's strange that ANC Black did not publish any further collections of Woodhouse's school stories because it's not as if he stopped writing them. The stories collected here were only the beginning. He went on to write about 25 more, another couple of books worth. All of these uncollected school stories can be found at madameulity.org. There have also been a couple of posthumous collections of Woodhouse school short stories, Tales of Rykin and Elsewhere, and The Politeness of Princes and Other Stories. I'm going to say this is my favourite book of the three we've covered so far for the sheer variety and fast-moving pace provided by the short story format. I think his comedy comes through more in these short stories too, so if I were to recommend one school book as a taster for Woodhouse's school stories for someone who hadn't read one before, I might well choose this one, I think. Or maybe Mike and Smith, because it's got Smith in it. I would like to thank the people behind madameulily.org, both for providing the material but also for their helpful annotations from such experts as Neil Midkiff and John Dawson. I would also like to thank the authors, living or deceased, of my expanding shelf of Woodhouse reference materials, Norman Murphy, Robert McCrum, Richard Usborne, Sophie Ratcliffe, Francis Donaldson and Paul Kent, and also the mysterious editors of Wikipedia. Please like, subscribe, rate and review as applicable. You can get in touch with me at woodhousekeeping at gmail.com and you can find me on Facebook under woodhousekeeping and on X, formerly Twitter, I'm at Monty Podkin. My name's Ian Coburn, and all that remains for me to say is tinkety tonk. Some philosopher of extraordinary powers of intuition once informed the world that the best of things come at last to an end. The statement was tested and is now universally accepted as correct. Author by P.G. Woodhouse. <laughs>